This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. Now we're going to jump over. We're going to skip the story of Saul and the medium at Endor. That will be for next week. And we're going to jump into chapter 29 to continue and resolve this story. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines asked, What about these Hebrews? Achish replied, Is this not David, who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel? He has already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish and said, Send the man back, that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle, or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? So Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve me in the army. From the day you came to me until today, I have found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Now turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what have I done? asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Achish answered, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, he must not go up with us into battle. Now get up early along with your master's servants who have come with you and leave in the morning as soon as it is light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. And it's a story in which David gets himself into an awful mess. What seemed to have been a very clever and ingenious solution to his problem, the very safest option that he could imagine turned out, in fact, to put David in the most dangerous situation yet. The story begins with a crisis, but it's not an external crisis, some event that gets the story moving, not some new hunt by Saul or some uh, insulting response by some landowner. The crisis begins in David's own mind. David has begun to think about his situation. And it's his own reflections that prompt David to leave Israel and head over the border toward the Philistines. It is surprising because David has just come off a series of episodes in which God had marvelously delivered him and had assured David that he would be the one to take the throne of Israel. In fact, the words had come out of the very mouth of King Saul, who had said just a couple verses earlier at the end of the previous chapter, you will do great things and you will surely triumph. David's enemy, who was hunting his life, was compelled to bless him and prophesy against his will of God's mighty promises for David. 
And man, David had looked very good in those chapters as he had first sawn off the corner of Saul's robe. And then he had taken the spear and the water jug and stood on the mountain across from Saul's army, shouting out to Saul. And David is all that we would like to imagine we would be and how we would like to imagine we would respond in dangerous and deadly situations, standing boldly on the promises of God, risking everything to head into the enemy camp based solely on our trust in the Lord. And man, David had responded in incredible faith in those episodes. But how quickly things can change. How quickly the effects can wear off in that moment of spiritual heroism. David seems to have gone to bed one night, sweetly trusting in the promises of God, and woken up early the next morning, filled with anxiety. His brain is racing. He's thinking to himself, one of these days, Saul is going to get me. I've had lucky break after lucky break, but inevitably my number is going to come up. I can't keep running from Saul forever. The best option I have after I've reviewed everything available to me is to do something incredibly risky to escape over the frontier into the land of the Philistines, Israel's enemies. That's the only thing I can do that will get Saul off my back where he will stop searching for me and I can slip out of his hand and end these years of anxiety and stress, never knowing when he's going to pop over the next hill and capture and execute me. David knows full well that whatever Saul might promise, he is in control of a paranoid mania and he's going to be right back to hunting David. And so David reviews his options and concludes there's only one thing left for him to do. And we shouldn't judge David too harshly in this story unless you yourself have been a fugitive, relentlessly hunted by special forces year after year after year, and only then would you realize it's impossible to spend so much time under constant tension, under unrelieving stress without cracking. David is seemingly just doing the sensible thing after all these dangerous escapes. And you know, I think we all know the difficulty of making the judgment. What is faith in this situation and what is presumption? Is it a sin or is it not a sin to use my judgment and to weigh my options and to employ my common sense to make a decision. I've heard many testimonies of God's amazing grace in my life. One that sticks in my mind is one I heard many years ago in the vineyard in Fort Langley. And a woman shared a story of uh, her and her husband. They were living in a basement suite and money was very tight. And in fact, they did not have enough money left to pay the rent. And the month's rent was $800 and they did not have that $800. But someone in their church uh, emailed her and said, hey, I, I feel like God's telling me to give you some money. And he's told me just to ask you, how much do you need? And I'll give you what you ask for. And she was in the bathtub. She was praying about it. And she felt like God was telling her, don't ask for the 800. Only ask for the 400. 
Only, she only felt faith, strangely, to ask for half of what she needed. And so, in faith, she responded, would you please, if God's leading you, would you please give us $400? And the man showed up at her door, and he gave her an envelope, and he said, it's not $400, it's $800, because God told me to give you exactly twice what you asked for. I mean, what an encouraging story of the providence of God, deliberately setting things up to make it very clear that it was God himself providing for her. The question is, what happens the next month, right? If you were a faithful friend to this woman and her husband, what would you advise them? To continue to wait for strangers to show up with envelopes of money doubling what you've asked for? We recognize this is a special situation. And faithfulness and wisdom and maturity means you look at your budget, you ask yourself, is there anything in here that we can't afford? Is this place too expensive for us? Do we need to get our debts consolidated? Do we need to find new jobs? Just because God has provided miraculously in one situation does not guarantee that he's going to respond the same way in the next. That would be presumption, putting God on the hook for something that he has not promised us. And when we do that, that's not trust, that's manipulation of God. We're called to pray to God, give us this day or daily bread. But the Bible also says, if you don't work, you're not going to eat. God provides normally through us going and getting jobs and getting money and going to the bakery and paying. So here is David and here is us trying to discern, is this faith or is this presumption? And the narrator in First and Second Samuel is very subtle. He's not one of these biblical writers who heavy-handedly says, and what David did was evil in the sight of the Lord, or what David did was righteous in the sight of God. He's a skillful narrator, and he avoids direct judgment. He presents the story, and he lets us make up our own mind. One telling clue about these chapters we've read is that God is not mentioned. God is not mentioned in these chapters except for twice on the lips of all people, on the lips of Achish, the pagan king of Gath. But otherwise, God seems to be absent from this story. He seems at least to be absent from David's mind. There's a lot in this tale about the brilliant maneuvering of David, about David's Uh, cleverness, his planning, his deception, his smooth words. David manages the situation very well up to a point. A lot about the brilliance of David, nothing about the provision of God. Here David makes this major life decision, not only for himself, but for his 600 men and their families to leave the land of Israel without inquiring of God. David's not like Saul, a man abandoned by God. Remember, David had the priest Abiathar with him. He had the ephod. And back when David was in the city of Calah in chapter 23, he had used the ephod to inquire of God. God, tell me, what should I do? Will these people betray me or not? He had this device that would give him infallibly a yes or no answer from God. And I suppose if you or I had such a device in our possession, we would be using that thing Constantly, or so we imagine, but David completely forgets to inquire of the Lord. He weighs things up, he plugs all the factors into his spreadsheet, 
He turns over all the pros and cons. He lists all of his possible options. He scores them all, and he determines the best course of action. David does everything, in fact, except to take a few minutes to ask God for his leading. Well, at first, things go brilliantly. They go very well. Here's David's plan. To head over to the Philistines, Israel's powerful army, powerful enemy. They've got five cities on the Mediterranean coast on the western border of Israel, and these are fearsome warriors. They have chariots, they have iron weapons that Israel simply does not possess. And Saul had enough military power to fend them off in the mountains, but there was no way that Saul could go and fight them on their own terms down on the plains. So David knows if he goes down there, Saul will be unable to pursue him. But it's obviously an extremely high-risk strategy because David is not a nobody. He's famous most of all for being a warrior against the Philistines. And this had begun, of course, when David with his sling had brought down the giant Goliath and cut off his head with his own swords. David had gone on to collect hundreds of foreskins, Philistine foreskins for his bride's dowry, and he'd led many other expeditions against the Philistines, all with incredible success. David's brand is conqueror of the Philistines. There are five Philistine towns in this area, five cities, each with their own ruler, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. And Gath is the most convenient because it's right on the frontier with Judah. But Gath is also, was also the hometown of Goliath. Goliath, the hometown hero who'd been beheaded by David himself. And it would have taken incredible guts to walk right up to Goliath's hometown and stand on the welcome mat and ring the doorbell. And amazingly, this is actually the second time David had done this. Back in chapter 21, he had fled to Gath. He'd been recognized. He had been brought before this very King Achish. And he had feigned madness. He had scratched on the doorpost with his fingers. He let spit run down his beard. And he'd been thrown out of the city by the king in disgust. And here David is showing up a second time in Gath. He must have been extremely desperate. Now, the Old Testament portrays the Philistines as brutally effective killing machines. But they're also portrayed as just a little thick. You know, they're just a little slow on the uptake. And Achish, clearly in this story, is no match for David's charm, for his smooth speech, and for his convincing arguments. And really, the way David presented it, must have presented it, it, it was a plausible scenario because... Disaffected warlords like David switched sides all the time. And the Philistines must have known that Saul was on the hunt for his former favorite, David. And they actually seem to time their own raids when they know that Saul's on the other end of the country hunting down David. And they could not have imagined that after all this, David was still loyal to Saul. That just would not have factored into their worldview. Why would David still be loyal? And well, you know, Goliath, I mean, that was 10 years ago. We can't afford to be sentimental. It's a bit like when your favorite sports team 
loses the national championship to their hated rivals, but then, during the offseason, you sign their star player. And this must have been the kind of thinking going on in Akish's mind. Here, this plum has fallen out of the tree right into his hands. This fearsome warrior, David, along with 600 battle-hardened men. A private army has just been gifted to Akish. 600 men plus their households, households, their wives, their children, their servants. David must have shown up with 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people in the town of Gath. And it would have been, you know, it would have been a burden on the king. The towns were not that big in those days to house and feed all these people. And David offers a very reasonable solution to Achish's problem. Why not just give us a sleepy country town somewhere far on the frontier? Well, this makes sense to Achish, and he gives David the town of Ziklag, a long ways away. 11 hours on the Marshrutka. It's way out there. He's never going to show up. And David is stuck on the southwestern border in this little country town, shoring up the frontier for Achish, right on the border with Judah, right on the border against these marauding desert tribes. Achish is thinking, I'm strengthening my position. I'm strengthening my borders. And David and his men spend the next 16 months conveniently far from the scrutiny of Philistine HQ. They can launch their own private raids, not against Judah, but against these nomadic peoples to the south. David, over this year and four months, begins to build up his own wealth. He's plundering all these animals, sheep, oxen, donkeys, camels, clothing, all this booty that he's collecting. And David, as a policy, deliberately leaves no survivors. Every man and every woman in the enemy camp is massacred, so no word gets back to Achish. Dead men tell no tales. Now, the narrator of the story doesn't give us a moral judgment one way or the other on David's brutal actions. But David, you know, he's operating this story seemingly without divine guidance, and he's doing what he feels he needs to do to keep up the ruse. And this is the ruse. This is the deception. He's telling Achish all this plunder that keeps on showing up. A certain generous percentage goes as tribute to the king of Gath. All this, David says, is from my raids against Judah and against Judah's allies. It's not the case, of course. It's against these nomadic tribes, but there's no way for the king to figure that out. And now he's convinced that David has completely burned his bridges with Israel. David has become a stench in their nostrils. There's no possible future left for David in Israel now that he's attacked his own people. He's enchained himself to the Philistines for life. David, of course, is laughing up his sleeve the whole time because not only is he safe from Saul, he's increasing, he's increased, he's strengthened his own position. For 16 months, he's been collecting intelligence on the Philistine strategy and technology. He's been building up his own hoard of wealth for himself and his men. And even while he's in exile, he's solidifying his own future political position in Israel by dealing with some of their enemies. It's a very good situation for David. And he must have relished after a day of hard raiding to return to Ziklag, to toast each other in the sunset, and to be congratulated by his men for his cleverness in organizing this brilliant 
situation. It goes very well for almost a year and a half. David is a clever, clever man. And then things go terribly wrong for David. The Philistine Joint Chiefs of Staff, they issue a general mobilization for an all-out campaign against Israel. All their forces are being summoned. And Achish, king of Gath, summons David and his private little army, his party of raiders, his bandits, up from Ziklag. These private raiding campaigns are at an end. Operating far outside of Philistine scrutiny, that's over now. Now, David and his little group of bandits are going to be marching right in the middle of huge Philistine army. David covers his surprise and assures Achish, excellent, this is, this is great news. Now you'll get to see for yourself what we're capable of. And there's nothing else really that a loyal vassal can say, but it, it turns out that David's actually overplayed his hand. He's so good at deception, he's completely won over Achish's trust. Achish is so impressed with David that he appoints David his bodyguard for life. And this is a great honor, but it's not what David is looking for. The very last thing that David is looking for, because now it means that David is going to be operating right under Achish's direct supervision. He will be with the king at all times. And by this point in the story, David's mind must have been racing. How could he possibly wriggle out of this trap? How can David avoid now fighting against Saul and against Israel? Because the moment he does that, the moment he sinks his sword into the first Israelite body, his political future is over on the other side of the border. No Israelite will ever trust David again. Now that he's proven himself to be what Saul always said he was, a traitor, a collaborator. Imagine some political dissident in Armenia, let's say, some leader of the opposition. And as long as he's hiding out from the police, you know, he might even win a lot of sympathy from his compatriots. And then he goes to Baku to hide out in an apartment there. Well, that's one thing. But it'd be quite another for this dissident to be photographed in Azerbaijani uniform, commanding a collaborationist tank battalion in the final assaults on Nagorno-Karabakh. Not only do you have no political future in Armenia, the moment you step over the border, you'll be torn limb from limb by a, an enraged mob. And this is a crude analogy to David's situation. Here he is in Philistine uniform about to attack his own people. The only other alternative David has is certain death. And that would be to turn and assassinate Achish and then make a desperate last stand with his little band of 600 men in the center of the Philistine forces where, of course, they will be massacred, they will be cut down. David has put himself in an impossible situation. He stuck his head into a hole that he can't remove it from. Fast thinking, smooth talking 
David, who has thought of everything, who has so brilliantly manipulated this whole situation to his great benefit, suddenly David has lost control. And now the story, which must have been so far hilarious to him and his men, has turned into a nightmare. David is having one of those dreams where you're on a conveyor belt, inexorably being pulled towards a horrible, bloody death. You can't move your arms or your legs. You can just watch destruction coming towards you. And there is nothing that David can do. All he can do is to go along with the situation and desperately hope and desperately pray that some miracle will happen, some new circumstance will arise. But it can't be a circumstance that he's able to generate. And salvation, it turns out, arises from an unexpected source. The Philistines, by chapter 29, have gathered at Aphek. Aphek was their favorite jumping-off point when the Philistines had attacked uh, Israel and caused national disaster by seizing the ark. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, Aphek was where they had jumped off from. So here we are in this familiar place, and David is about to march into the Philistine camp. One by one, battalions are arriving from all over. Uh, the country. People are setting up tents, they're roasting meat, they're sharpening their weapons, they're offering sacrifices to their gods, focusing their minds on tomorrow's battle against Israel. And the Philistines must have done quite the double take when they looked up and saw David and a company of Hebrews march boldly into their camp right behind Aphek. The commanders from the other four cities, presumably, are stunned. And they get right into Achish's face. Would you mind explaining what on earth is going on? What is this guy and these Hebrews doing here? Achish is like, oh yeah, no problem. This is, this is David. He's the servant of, of King Saul of Israel. Probably not the best way to introduce David, not the most diplomatic Certainly not how David would have introduced himself. And you can imagine him face-palming in the background as Achish clumsily blunders forward. But Achish says, David has been with me for some time. and He's proven himself to be a good, loyal, effective soldier. I I haven't found a single fault in him. The other officers, though, are not convinced. And they are furious at this breach of security. They're incredulous that Achish can be so naive and so trusting. What if this Hebrew switches sides in the middle of battle? Not so far-fetched, because back in chapter 14, remember Jonathan and his armor bearer had climbed the cliff and attacked the Philistine encampments? There had been Hebrew mercenaries in Philistine uniforms who had switched sides in the heat of battle and caused massive confusion. And these Philistines are not slow to forget. Besides, what better way for David to get himself back into the favor of his former master than tipping the scale of battle in favor of Israel at the crucial moment. And these these guys, these commanders, they remember exactly who David is. Sometimes their radios would pick up the top 40 coming from Israel. There was some interference and they would hear the song they were constantly playing 
that the one with the chorus about Saul killing his thousands and David killing his ten thousands. It was a very catchy tune. It one of those little earworms. You just couldn't get out of your head. And they had not forgotten the song and they knew exactly who this David was and what he was capable of. And there's no way, there's no way they're going to allow David on the battlefield. Look, Akish, if you're dumb enough to entrust your life to this guy, that's fine. You do it on your own territory, on your own time. But you're outvoted four to one. Get this guy out of here. It's terribly embarrassing for Akish. He suffered a great loss of face here, and you can feel the embarrassment as he explains the situation to David, tries to soften it for him. He's afraid David's going to be, you know, upset and, and angry. He just begs David, please, I'm really sorry, would you please just leave without causing a fuss? And David certainly acts like he's terribly disappointed, like he's grievously offended. But really, it must have been hard for him and his men to hide their relief at the escape that's been offered to them. They leave early the next morning, and it must have taken considerable self-control for them not to break out into a run as they leave the camp. But as soon as they go around the bend and out of sight, they must have just high-fived each other and then hightailed it out of the neighborhood as fast as possible before anyone changed their minds. David will not have to betray his loyalty to King Saul. He will not be forced to kill his Israelite brothers. And when the disaster at Mount Gilboa happens at the end of the book, David will be far away. God is not mentioned in these chapters. But that doesn't mean that God wasn't at work. The narrator doesn't tell us in so many words, but he's taught us story after story that here once again, God has delivered David from a very tight spot. And this time, God uses, of all people, the suspicious Philistine commanders to do it. That's the great thing about the story. You know, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, and God does that all the time. He uses some very strange people and some very odd sources to rescue his people. And he can even turn the malice and suspicion of our enemies to our advantage. And God's people will often find themselves in desperate places. Their backs are to the Red Sea, the armies in front of them, the enemy army. All hope seems lost, but it doesn't mean that it's a desperate situation for God. And he has a way of making salvation appear from unexpected places. You know, I think this story is a powerful reminder of the grace of God. David had turned inward. He had forgotten to seek God. He had depended on his own very considerable resources, his own impressive brilliance. And for quite some time, for 16 months, it had worked out very well for David until the day that it didn't work anymore. And perhaps you've made the same mistake as David. Perhaps you're making the same mistake as David right now. We're all tempted to do it, to rely on our own foresight, 
our own judgment, our own ability to control our lives and to set everything up and to manage it all very carefully for our own security and our own advantage. The problem, of course, is that you can control a lot of things, but there's no way you can control every possible circumstance. And life has a way, life has a terrible way of making us feel our own total helplessness. But here's the grace of God. David is marching off to his doom in the middle of the Philistine army, but God does not abandon David. God could very well have said, well, David, serves you right. Forgot to pray, and after all I've done for you, that really hurt me. You have no idea. Now, you've made your bed, you lie in it. You blew it, David. Your lack of faith, your unbelief forfeited my promises. Good luck on your own. Thank God that's not how he treats David, and it's not how he treats us. Because God delights to show himself a God of grace who shows up not for the deserving, but for the undeserving. Not for those who are perfectly faithful, but for those who are weak and forgetful and who are seduced into trusting in the flesh. That is who God shows up for. And he promises that even when his children get themselves into a terrible mess through their own weakness and even their own sin, God will come to the rescue. David doesn't look his best in this story. And as you read through the Bible, you discover that about every hero in the Bible has significant flaws and, in fact, appalling sins and failures. Achish, naive, trusting, innocent Achish, finds no fault in David. He's as blameless as an angel of God. David, of course, is not. And you learn there are no heroes in the Bible except for Jesus. No heroes in the church except for Jesus. And you know what? This isn't just a personal failure of David's. It's a deadly failure of leadership because David has 600 men who have entrusted their lives to him. And David nearly gets them all massacred because of his own cockiness. No such leadership failures with Jesus. Jesus doesn't need a public relations team to explain away the latest scandal. He doesn't have a team of lawyers forcing people to sign non-disclosure agreements. Jesus is completely trustworthy, the only leader who will never disappoint us, who will never fail us, and he will never let us down. It's foolish. It's very foolish to find security in our own cleverness and our own ability to manage things. So little, really, that we can control. And God alone knows our futures. So, of course, this text is a reminder for us to pray and to be seeking God. Lord, please show me the way. 
show me the path. Guide me. May your word be a light before me. May your Holy Spirit hold my hand and show me the way that I should take. It's easy for us to forget to pray. But ultimately, our security is not in our own devotion to prayer, but in the high priest who never stops praying for us. Jesus, our king, our high priest, who went to the cross for us, who rose from the dead for us, and who is seated at the right hand of God for us, where he never, never, ever, ever stops interceding for his children, where he never stops working all things out to the good of those who love God. So let's respond now in prayer, and then let's stand in worship. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your children who are weak and who are sinful. And you know the ways in which we have trusted ourselves instead of trusting in you, in the way we have relied on our own resources, and our own wisdom, and our own judgment. We've planned and controlled everything, but we've forgotten to seek you and ask, what do you want us to do, Lord? And you know the messes we have gotten ourselves into. You may, you know the messes that we are about to get ourselves into. And our only hope, Lord, is not in our cleverness or in our fervency of prayer. Our only hope is in Christ, your Son. Help us to lean our weight entirely upon him and make him completely the center of our lives. In his precious name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.